Father, we, um, we live in a time, Father, and, and you know how deeply Canadian most of us are, and we're afraid to talk about certain things, and we're even afraid to see certain things written in your word. And um, so, Father, we ask that you help us not to be afraid, uh, to be secure, Father, in your word and secure in your love for us, and that as your gospel becomes more real to us and helps us to be more secure in who you are and your great love for us, and that this is your word, your world, and we are your children living in your world under your care, uh, that you would help us, Father, to allow your word to form us deeply and deeply, knowing that as your word for, forms us deeply, it'll form us to generosity and hospitality, to righteousness and to justice and mercy and to prayerfulness. So, Father, do this wonderful work in our lives, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. So you might have noticed uh, when Matt was reading, but I, I have a full disclosure in case you didn't. Um, the first half of this, we're reading the first half of a, uh, of a story. So there's a story in two parts, and it's the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I'm also aware that it's Pride Month. And so uh, if you're a guest here, uh, or if you're a guest online, uh, just let you know, those of those, if I move my head like this, it creates feedback, just let you know that uh, this isn't like me throwing down the gauntlet or trying to give the finger to anybody or anything like that or a challenge. Uh, I sort of, I don't think about what months they are and stuff like that. And, and those of you who know, we don't really do anything for Mother's Day or Father's Day or other days. Uh, we just preach through books of the Bible or large sections of the Bible, and uh, it never really struck me that we would be talking about this chapter during uh, this story during Pride Month. So it's not a challenge. Uh, it's, um, but, but, but I'm not embarrassed about the story. And maybe it's, in fact, one of the best times uh, for us who are Christians to look at a story like this during Pride Week. Because actually, if, as, as you see this week and next week, uh, it, it forms us towards compassion as well as to justice and to righteousness. Um, now, just, just the other thing about it, it's the actual, this is sort of the lead up to Sodom and Gomorrah. And next week, we actually have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Spoiler alert, but there you go, it, it gets destroyed. But interestingly enough, in this lead up uh, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, uh, the Bible actually touches very, uh, in, in very simple ways, in a very simple story, uh, with the mystery of human freedom and worth and dignity and the possibility of having true meaning in your life, not a meaning that you sort of grab for yourself, but a, a meaning which is bigger than you that you can enter into and walk, walk into it. So let's, let's look. Uh, open up your Bibles, and we'll read this text together. Um, this scary text. Uh, part of this text has a, a, a bit of a. a, a anyway, let's let's get, let's get into the text, and it goes like this: Genesis eighteen, verse one, and we're, we're going through the Abraham stories, and uh, we're going to end in. Um, and we're going to take a week off the last week of June, uh, but then we'll finish it the first week of July with the story of uh, Isaac being 
sacrificed, uh, potentially sacrificed or sacrificed uh, because of God's command. Here's how this, go- this story goes. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abram, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now just sort of pause. Look again at verse 2. He's at his tent, and then verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, um, just a, a couple of things about this. I don't want to take too long about it. The first thing is, is you're going to see Abraham reacts in a very odd way to these men. And um, I know there's at least two people here in the, at the, in the service today who know Hebrew very well. And so if they tell me otherwise, I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge it next week. But I think part of what explains the oddness that's going to happen afterwards is that they just appeared. He's sitting there. You know, and all of a sudden there's three men. Like one moment there's none, then all of a sudden there are. And I think that's what helps to explain uh, the odd things that he's going to do in response to it. Like, in a sense, the -the over-the-topness of how he responds to it. Um, the other thing is about these men, and, I, and, and here's the thing, is if you read the text, as we read the text, and as you, you go into it next week as well, they're always called men, but they're also called angels. And one of the men is also called the Lord. And uh, the narrator uses the word Yahweh, uh, the, in a sense, the covenant name for God. Uh, and they also use the, the word Adonai. Adonai, as, uh, the Abraham himself, de- clearly refers to, to this one of the people as, as God. So, you know, what, what's really going here? The Bible doesn't really explain it. It's not the incarnation. I don't think it's the pre-incarnate Christ or anything like that. Using a bit of a video game analogy, I think it's an avatar. That would be maybe a better way to explain it. That two angels, in a sense, appear or take on flesh and just for the purpose of this story and are in the story. And uh, God himself, the angel of the Lord, who's mentioned throughout the Old Testament in different places, and an angel who, in a sense, represents God, uh, this also is like an avatar, so that to speak to this angel is as, as if speaking to the Lord, and to hear this angel speak is as if the Lord speaks. I think that's what's going on in the text, but the Bible uh, never makes it clear. Uh, other than the fact that the Bible is clear that up until the coming of Jesus, no man has ever seen God and lived. So I think it's like an avatar. Those of you who are familiar with video games, I think that's what's going on. So these th- three humans uh, or, and, and or angels, all of a sudden they're there. And that's why uh, Abram in verse 2, he runs from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth. And in verse 3, he speaks and says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. In other words, in the shade. While I bring a morsel of bread, just a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant, So Abram is showing hospitality and also deference. So they said, do as you have said. In other words, they said, okay, we'll go and sit under the tree and you go and get the little morsel ready. 
Now, just sort of pause here for a second uh, before I read the next, uh, the next little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I think uh, we went, uh, all told, uh, 11 days without, without hydro. And, um, you know, such first world problems. It was so frustrating. I mean, we had a generator connected, you know, but I, you have to, first you have to make your coffee, then you have to unplug the coffee maker. And then you have to plug in the toaster. And then you have to make the toast rather than putting the two on at the same time. And I'm just being a big baby. But that's like tiresome and stuff like that. And you know, and you, you know yourselves as well. You know some of you have virtually nothing in your fridge because between eating out and calling Uber, uh, all you have in your fridge is maybe some mustard <laughs> or some ketchup or something like that. Because we like everything quick, we like everything instant, we like everything eating out. So it, this next bit would drive us crazy. He says, let's just have a bit of morsel of bread, right? And then look what happens in verse 6. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes or bread. That's 22 liters of flour. (laughs) Take 22 liters of flour, get a fire going, and make bread out of 22 liters. That's a huge amount of flour. And then, verse 7, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf. Well, just, I mean, I'm a city guy. I grew up in Montreal, and and then I, I went to Eganville, uh, you know, and then I lived in Ottawa, and I mainly lived in Ottawa. But let me tell you, like a calf isn't just like a little thing like this. He's not talking about like a baby goat. Like a calf <laughs> might weigh 500 pounds. 500 pounds. <laughs> so look, look what's going on here. It's, like, it's crazy for us Canadians, right? Have Just stop for a moment. A morsel of bread and a bit of water, right? Verse 7. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, hard text for vegetarians, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. In other words, he killed it, skinned it, took out the guts, starts roasting it. This isn't just something like getting on the phone and hoping that if your Uber order is going to be longer than 25 minutes, you're not going to take it. Like, this is lots of work. 500 pounds of beef, 22 liters of flour made into bread, and all this other stuff as well. Then he took curds and milk, verse 8, and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, just sort of, you know, pause here for a second. Uh, Some of you might be thinking, like, this is way overkill, this is exaggeration, and what waste? Like, Three dudes cannot, even the biggest eaters amongst you, if we were to pick the three guys with the biggest appetites, could not eat 500-pound calf, 22 liters of stuff, and all the other stuff. So what's going on here? I had a little tiny bit of a glimpse of what was going with this. Uh, The the first time, I got invited, unworthy as I am, to in 2003 to go to rural Kenya. Uh, They invited evangelical Anglican evangelical Anglicans from all over the, the world to come together for a, this consultation. And um, this wasn't like a fancy type of thing where people on you know, government expense accounts or Apple expense accounts or something like that go. Uh, this was in rural Kenya where 
like real Kenyans would actually go, and real Nigerians, and, and real people from the Congo, and real people from Chile, where we go. So, so it's in rural, it was like about 50 kilometers north and upstream of, uh, up, uphill from Nairobi. And on the Sunday that I was there, we got invited to go, me and a fellow uh, from India and a fellow from England, uh, the three of us got invited to walk several kilometers uh, down a road that a car couldn't make it to this place where there was a, a church. And uh, we were the guests of honor, and, and the, the English fellow got to preach. And it's, it's so neat. Uh, some of you have been to rural Africa, or maybe some of you even have, have grown up there. Uh, and it's not just a church building, but there's like a compound as well. And so as we're coming up for the meal, the women uh, are at several fires and the church compound making food. And as the service is going on, you can smell the food. And at the end of the service... Um, the three of us, uh, with the elders of the congregation and the lay reader who was looking after it, we get invited for the meal. We're invited to stay for the meal. It was part of the, part of the deal because they wanted to honor us. Now, it was very, very odd for me as a Canadian to have this meal because basically, other than the, the lay reader and the, the several men who were the elders and us three guests, nobody ate. The women... And others sat around us the outside of the room, and others were outside. And after we ate, they ate. Now, it was just a way of them and their culture showing us honor. I felt uncomfortable. Like, by my nature, I would have said, you know, no, no, you have this seat. No, no. That, would have, that would have insulted them. They were honoring us. So what we see here is, if you think about it for a second, Abraham has realized that the Lord has showed up. So he's not just going to make two pieces of pita bread and a couple of dried fish to give to the Lord. Everybody should celebrate. And we know from other places in this story that Abraham has many servants, many other dependents, and others. They're all going to eat. It's not just for these three guys. This is a celebration. We're going to have the fatted calf. This is going to be a great day. But as a way to honor them, not even Abraham in this particular case eats with them. Just the three people eat. But you could be sure that if you went back in a time machine after the three had eaten, everybody would eat. It's a festival. It's a celebration. But it's also showing honor to these three. And now we see uh, something that they're going to actually say. Now, before we read the thing that the angels say, and remember, this is part of the story leading up to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of the problems that we Canadians have with the Bible is we think the Bible is confused and we're not. But often what happens is that we're inconsistent and confused and massively unaware. Now, if you think about it for a second, and many people pray, what happens? So first of all, most of the time we like to live our lives and, and basically have God do nothing, nothing to do with us. We want to do our own thing in our own way in our own time. But sometimes when we're really, 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 really in trouble, we pray, and when we pray, what do we want God to do? We want God to almost make all of the people, you know, maybe the bank managers or maybe our boss or our parents or our, our, our wife or our husband, we want him almost to make them like puppets. And he can just sort of all of a sudden move them around in such a way that the trouble that we're in goes away. And other times, we, we pray that we want God to intervene in a sense that's like that's almost miraculous. We pray because, you know, somebody 
is, is close to death's door and we, we want them to live. Or uh, we know that there's a financial crisis in, in one of, you know, for our friend or one of our kids and, and we, want, we want that to come to an end. And so in a sense, we pray for a miracle. And if you think about it for a second, what we're, what we're showing is that when we want it, when I want it, when you want it, I want God to intervene. When I don't want him to intervene, I want him out of the way. But I want him to intervene. And when he intervenes in a way that's like a miracle, it's like this. And if we're in a Bible study group or we're having a mentoring thing, or maybe if, you know, because lots of people who aren't Christians and lots of people who even consider themselves secular, they also pray. I was talking to a young man this week who has nothing to do with the Christian faith, but he told me he prays, amongst other things. But you see, here's, here's where inconsistent is. If, if God is a God who can intervene and we want him to do that, why, why is it bad if God intervenes all right for a miracle but not in judgment? Like the reason we have a problem with that, it actually reveals not only that we're confused, but that in our heart of hearts, I want to be God. Now, each of you are saying, George, you're not God. And under your breath, you're saying, because I'm God. <laughs> and that's why there's often conflict. You have two people with God projects in denial trying to live together. And if you have kids, you have four, five, six, whatever the number is, with God projects, all trying to live together. So we're a bit confused about this, but this is the right type of intervention. And that's, that's what we see here in the, in the next few verses. Look at verse 9. Uh, these, that's the, the guests, they said to him, uh, verse 9, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now, just sort of pause here. Uh, what the language is saying is that Sarah had been postmenopausal for a long time. Uh, the, in the original language, the normal menstrual cycle that women have, uh, once they hit a certain age, uh, puberty, uh, that has come to an end for quite a long time. Uh, one of the things which is going on in this story is it's very similar to what happens if you read the Gospels. Uh, the eyewitness ancient biographies of Jesus, is you see as you read the Gospels very carefully uh, that nobody believed, first of all, that Jesus would die, and then second of all, that if he did die, that he would rise from the dead. Like, nobody believed it. And the stories, all four of them set this up. And, and this is setting up the fact that, it, you know, she's old, she doesn't believe this, nobody believes this, that God, in fact, is going to do this profound miracle, which is going to happen in a couple of chapters. So after the, the general promise that there'd be a son, now it's very specific. Um, this son is going to come, this time next year when they come back, Sarah will have a son. And it's setting up the miracle. Verse 12, though, Sarah doesn't believe this. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old. It's a di different word than Lord that's been used all the way through, by the way. It's... Uh, the old guy, uh, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? He reads her thoughts. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, that could be a whole sermon just in of itself. It's the big challenge to every single one of us. It's the big challenge of prayer. It's the the big challenge of how to live our lives with a type of confidence and humility. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah, she's caught by her lie. She, she's caught by what she, her, her lack of faith, her laughing at God, and she's embarrassed. And so she lies. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But the Lord said, no, you did. You laughed. Now, this is going to be important at the end of it, but we see here, once again, we see that the Bible does not show that Abraham and Sarah are perfect people and that God is going to show grace, is showing grace to imperfect people. And imperfect is not even the right word. To use the old-fashioned biblical word, Abraham and Sarah are sinners, And God shows grace to sinners. Nothing, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Now we come to the part that's going to start to make us a little bit nervous. Um, It's the part about what what is God going to do about Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went out with them, went with them to set them on their way. He's a good, a good host. He's going to walk a little way with them on their journey. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a great and mighty nation, And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. Uh, And the word there is, it's a relational word. I know him, I understand him. Um, It's not just like, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. There's this idea of the the choosing, the, it's sort of a little bit similar to, in a sense, the, the, the man who's marrying the woman chooses his his wife and 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 the woman chooses her husband and it and they know each other there uh it's not just the marriage ceremony but as as life goes on they 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 have an, a knowledge of each other and that's that's being communicated here it's a it's a personal interpersonal relational uh, type of word verse 19 for i have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the lord by doing righteousness and justice. The way of the Lord is to do righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So, so God, the Lord, says to himself, um, 
You see, what, what this story is, is communicating to us in a very powerful way, and it's one of the reasons, you see, we, got, we, we gather in church on a Sunday, and, and part of what gathering in a church on a Sunday is all about is the, the word of the Lord is, is opened, and we spend time thinking about it, because God desires to reveal his heart to us. He desires to, to speak to us, and his words are grace. He desires to give to us. And he desires us to help him to understand better who he is and who we are and what the real world is like and how to live in the world. Um, and, and so we see here that Abraham, we see here this in a sense how God normally thinks. It's, it's brought out here in this particular story that that's partly what God wants to do. And, and righteousness and justice... Are put together. It's not that you either be righteous or you be just, uh, that you have to choose one of the two of them. Uh, you, you can't have one without the other, and, and they come from the same, same root. And, 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 and uh, it's, it's all about righteousness is, is living well, and it's living well in God's world, and it's living well with God and, and with all God's creation, with other people. And it's, it's righteousness is connected to flourishing in that world. And justice is all about restoring the flourishing of human beings and human relationships in God's world, in God's presence. And sometimes you have to restore because we live in a fallen world and God's people get oppressed. And when God's people get oppressed, then justice is required. The oppressors have to be stopped. And there has to be some punishment done to them. And the oppressed need to be delivered and set free to the end that they can flourish. And that is the way of the Lord. So God knows what's going to happen. And he realizes, or he, he communicates, so he's going to let Abraham know what's happening. Verse 20. And the Lord said, this is now to, he's speaking to Abraham. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, Here's the thing about stories. Stories work in connection with abstract ideas to help us to understand abstract ideas better. Stories, in a sense, shape us to understand things. At a, and it, it's, you know, sometimes when we realize, you know how sometimes you come to an insight and, you, and on one level, it's like you always knew it, but you never sort of put it into words. And that often happens because stories have formed us to understand certain things. So one of the things that we've seen, I haven't talked about it much lately, but when they talk all the time throughout these stories, when they talk about God giving the land, that's a, a simple way of communicating that God is sovereign, that he's all-powerful, that he's transcendent, that he's a higher, higher than all those gods. And I can use words like transcendent, and I can use words like sovereign, and we might or might not know what they mean, but when we hear the Bible say that God is going to give the land to Abraham, that's communicating that God is sovereign. It's forming us to have a bit of a sense about what sovereignty might mean or all-powerful might mean. 
And the same thing here, it's not that, because you might say, well, how did, like, this doesn't make any sense, George. Like, I thought God knew all things. Like, uh, didn't you just say earlier, uh, is anything too hard for the Lord? Like, isn't that what you just said earlier? Isn't that what the Bible just said? So how is it that God can't know what's going down there? Well, this story is using this very simple type of language to communicate profound truths about God. And profound truths as well, once we we understand that who God is and how he's made the world, and if God does this, we need to do it, we need to do it as well. And what's being communicated is that God is not petty, he's not anger-driven, he's driven by justice, he's driven by goodness, he's driven by the truth, he's driven... He's deeply patient, and those are what drive him. And none of his judgments are done slapdash or without knowing what's actually gone on. It's why in many other places in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and you read the book of Revelation, the constant claim made at the end of the days as God's judgments are fully revealed, and in a sense we replay what's happened both at the end of the ages and throughout the ages, the constant refrain is that God was just. Praise him. He did what was just. And he wouldn't be just if he did things slapdash. He wouldn't be just if he didn't do it with what truly had happened, what was truly wrong, who were truly affected. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be just or worthy of praise if he was driven by anger and pettiness. And so this is communicating in a very simple but easily to remember way. Like, you can tell this story to young children and, and read it to them over and over and over again. And as you read it over and over and over to them, it's, it's forming within them this idea. God is not anger driven. God wants to know the truth. And, and God acts out of the truth. And God acts in a way that's just. And he acts in a way that's fair. And that's what's being communicated here in this particular thing. But there's something else that still has to be revealed about God. And that is his mercy even before the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the question is, is God merciful? Well, that's what's going to be communicated very powerfully. And not only powerfully, it's going to be communicated in such a way that it gives us an insight about the profound dignity and worth of human beings. Here's how it goes. And some of you will recognize this is a very famous story, at least in some circles. It goes like this, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, in other words, Abraham comes right up to the Lord. This is an image of prayer, by the way, right? Coming near to the Lord to speak to him and to hear him speak to you. Verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In other words, you've said you're just. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, by the way, just pause here for a second. 
the assumed subtext of all of this is two things which are very important to grasp. Abraham knows Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows that if God goes and looks, they will be swept away. See, part of what's being shown here about us as Christians is that we are to pray for all sorts and conditions of men and women. Now, obviously, you do not make the mistake of praying for Putin the way you, you pray for the Ukrainian freedom fighter. But you are to pray for both. But not with moral equivalence. But you pray for both. So Abraham knows and believes two things. That if God actually comes down, the city's destroyed. So this isn't moral relativism. This isn't moral indifference. But this is Abraham interceding for very bad people. Verse 23 again. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, suppose... Five of the fifty are righteous or lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, Abraham spoke to the Lord and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And the Lord answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And the Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And the Lord answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. I I did a bit of an internet search, and I'm not sure if this is connected to it, but in modern Judaism, and it's been this for for quite a few centuries, you need ten men for synagogue. If you have less than ten, you don't have a synagogue. And I don't know if it's connected to this at all. Uh, but the idea that you need the the ten, that one righteous community praying and bearing witness in that community. So what what's going on here? Does God does Abraham change God's mind? One of the biggest crises I had in my young Christian life. And it affected me for quite a few months, and I wasn't able to find any help um, when I talked to Christians about it. 
was that I, I was challenged by, I guess, what I would now know to be naturalist philosophers, people who believe that really all there is is what science can discover. Uh, if you can't weigh it, if you can't measure it, if you can't do scientific experiments on it, it's not real. And in this world where there's matter and there's energy, things just happen. It's like a billiard ball. You hit the ball, and the ball hits other balls, and the balls all move around, and, and they hit different things, and, and it's just cause and effect, and that effect becomes a cause. And I might think that I have free will, and I, I might think that I've chosen to be a Christian, but it's just all cause and effect. And, um, and that I almost lost my faith over it. And it's in effect, on one level, it's the dominant philosophy underlying all of Canada, although most people haven't really thought through what it actually means if it's true. If there's only cause and effect, which becomes another cause, it's just really an endless series of causes, and all of the causes are material and physical. If that's the case, there is no freedom. And in a sense, there is no you. And if there is no freedom and there is no you, life doesn't have any meaning. And really, you ultimately have absolutely no type of dignity. And that, in fact, is a problem. And usually in naturalistic philosophers and thinkers, they try to get around it in some way. One of the things that they'll try to do now is create things like multiverses and stuff like that. But it doesn't get around that fundamental problem that if a human being is really just a biological organism and biology can be reduced to chemistry and chemistry can be reduced to physics and it's just cause and effect, then you really have no particular identity and you have no freedom and you have ultimately no meaning to your life and no type of, a, of, of worth. And, of course, there's other ways of thinking about this in the world, but you know the other two ways of thinking about it in the world, apart from the Christian one, have their own types of problems. That if you take seriously ideas of karma and death and rebirth and, and the fact that there was originally some type of cosmic accident or tragedy that left to, to, to distinct entities, but every distinct entity is really ultimately just not the way things should be. There should just be the one. And at some point in time, we will return to the one. And if, if we don't really have an identity and, and, and we do have some type of a of, of, of dignity in the sense that we do different things and it, it might move, but it, all it's doing is moving us towards that day when we lose who we are and we become like one. And, and in our, for our Muslim friends, I mean, obviously, people live better than this. Because, you see, on, on one level, at, at, at a very deep level, we know that we have, that there should be meaning to life and we know that we have some freedom, and we know that we should have dignity, even if that doesn't fit with our religions and our philosophies. And, and in Islam, you just have divine command. Allah just wills it. It's written on who you are when you were born, what your destiny is going to be, and everything is just the will of Allah. But here we see, and, and here, I mean, it's not obviously talking about the Trinity, but the, the Christian, you know, when Jesus, the Jesus brings to clarity what the Old Testament teaches, and Jesus reveals how he is both God and the Father is God, and both are God, but there's not 
two gods, but just one God. And then as he talks about the Holy Spirit in such a way that it's very clear that the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit isn't Jesus. And there's just ultimately, there's ultimately only one God, but there's these three persons. You actually, only in Christianity do you have at a very, very, very deep level this picture of difference and freedom and action but without there being any sin. And it's this trinity that creates human beings and he creates us in his image. And so what you see working out in here is that God gives the dignity of causality and provides the context that human beings can have true causality and not just causality in the physical world and the mental world and the emotional world, but also in the spiritual world. That God gives human beings, we have a mind, we have a soul, and our soul is enfleshed. Or another way to look at it would be that our flesh, our physical biology, is ensouled. Two different ways of saying the same thing. And that means we are part of a world of cause and effect and flow, but there's always part of us, that part made in the image of God and likeness of God, which is separate but connected, not completely determined, that really does have freedom, that's made in the image of God. And part of the way that God created human beings was that human beings would have the dignity, the worth of being able to cause things to be, to create, to choose, to build, to plant, to dance, to sing, to flourish. And that goes not just for the physical world, but for the emotional world, the mental world, and the spiritual world in prayer. And God in his sovereignty, his will, in a sense, is intermingled without ever diminishing his will at any time whatsoever, is intermingled with our prayers as he is sovereign over the entire earth. And that is what's being seen here very, very powerfully and simply in this very simple dialogue between Abraham and the Lord. Abraham praying to the Lord. And what we see here is that the Lord not only is not anger-driven, but that he's truth-driven, he's justice-driven, he's goodness-driven, but he's also concerned with mercy. Now, Abraham has made a mistake. His mistake is to think that the distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous is the distinction between persons. And that's a mistake. It's not that I'm righteous and one of you is unrighteous. But the Bible, as it goes on and as more is revealed and as more is revealed in, in, in Genesis and Exodus and all the way into the New Testament, the line between the righteous and the unrighteous does not go between people. It does not go between people groups. It does not go between nations. It goes right down every single human being. There are parts of me that are very, very good and made in the image of God, and there are parts of me that are very, very bad and wicked. And Abraham could only conceive of God coming down to wipe away 
But the very fact that this story shows mercy points to that greater time in the future when God would come down and live amongst us. And his name was Emmanuel. He came and dwelt and lived amongst us, not so that we would be destroyed. But that in his life and in his death upon the cross, justice and mercy meet. They kiss. They embrace. And you see the perfect justice of God and the perfect mercy of God and the perfect goodness of God. And even amidst all of the blood and the pain, the beauty of God. God, the Son of God, Emmanuel, coming and dwelling amongst us in our mess and seeing eye to eye our great need and his response is to die. His response is to have mercy. And so the justice of God is met. The things that I have done wrong that would demand God's justice and payment are paid by him. And his mercy is met. And that it's, I am clothed with his righteousness as a gift. And you see then that it's not that we practice hospitality. And if we practice hospitality and hospitality enough that maybe God will like us. And it's not that maybe if we practice justice enough that God would like us, or that we practice mercy enough that God would like us, or if we pray enough that God would like us. But that when we understand that Emmanuel came down, that justice and mercy, in a sense, meet on the cross, and that I, who have a part of me that is unrighteous, that I cannot fix for myself, that that is dealt with by a pure and utter gift of God that is given to me. As I reflect upon that and as I receive that gift, that gift forms me to be more hospitable. It forms me not to live in fear of other people, but to be hospitable. It forms me to show mercy. It forms me to pray even for very bad people. It forms me to pray even for the impossible. Why? God showed hospitality to me when he died upon the cross. God showed mercy to me when he died for me on the cross. God did something for a bad person like me when he died upon the cross. And God did something impossible for me when he died upon the cross, and he brought a sinner like myself to himself. And so that as this gift of Emmanuel becomes more clear to us, this time when the true and greater story, the true and greater story of of Genesis 18, when Jesus walks amongst us as Emmanuel, as we realize the gift of who he is, it forms us. It forms us. He was hospitable to us. I am to be hospitable out of his hospitality. He has shown mercy to me. Out of his mercy, I am to show mercy. Out of his care for the bad, I am to care for the bad. Out of his doing the impossible, I am to pray for the impossible. That is the gospel. That's how it forms us. Please stand. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father, if there are any here who are listening who would not have described themselves as Christians, and uh, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move and work in their lives to help them to 
to bow the knee to you and to ask Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord. And Father, for us, Father, you know we can get very upset about the badness of the world. We can wish that we could just have rose-colored glasses to no longer see the world and the badness. But Father, we, we, we thank you for stories like this. We ask, Lord, that as we, as we deal with the badness of the world and the goodness of the world, as, as, as we, that, that, Father, that it's not be that we, we want rose-colored glasses, but that we want the gospel to be more real to our hearts so that we can see the world as it really is. But as we see the world as it really is, it, it, it creates within us as we reflect upon the gospel this desire to be hospitable, to see mercy, to see justice to see goodness, to pray even for the worst, to pray even for that which is impossible. And Father, mindful of of how long Sarah and Abraham had to work to wait, that you would grant us a great patience and persistence in prayer, that we would not just pray for an hour or for a day or a week, but that you would put it within our hearts to be people who would pray, in some cases, for years and for decades. Father, form us and shape us by the gospel, the gospel that we have received. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.